0: Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is season six, episode 11, Destiny with Alonzo Chadwick. Alonzo is a singer based in Portland, Oregon. He has an incredible vocal range and he can perform in almost any genre. He has a band called Zoleful Music that's toured all over the country. And for the last 15 years, he's been working as a recurring soloist with the Grammy nominated Oregon Symphony. He also co-wrote, arranged and recorded a song that the world renowned Alvin Ailey dancers toured and performed with worldwide. Alonzo is now the executive director of Bravo Youth Orchestra, a nonprofit that teaches children to play classical music with free violin, string and choral classes. Despite having a very difficult childhood, which I want to warn you he will touch on in this interview, Alonzo has created a beautiful, successful career in the arts. He's very well known for his energetic stage presence and his ability to bring peace and joy to his audiences. After seeing Alonzo uplift and electrify an audience of thousands of people at his gospel Christmas show last holiday season, I knew I had to speak with him. He's a dear friend and also a mentor to Future Prairie co-director Emmanuel Henri, who helped coordinate and conduct this interview. We're so proud to be presenting our favorite snippets from that conversation today. Please enjoy Alonzo.
1: My name is Alonzo Chadwick Sr. Um, and I was born in Omaha, Nebraska. And coming to Portland, my grandfather lived here. My mother lived in Omaha, Nebraska, with her mom and that side of the family. My grandfather's side of the family dwelled here in Portland. And so Omaha was really rough and that's really surprising to a lot of people, but it was a pretty rough area that we lived in. And so my mom wanted something different for us. So she relocated and moved us all here to Portland in 1985. I was five years old. I specifically remember it was a very traumatic experience actually because we moved here and the day after we got here, my baby brother who was a few months old passed away the day after we got here. And so that was a pretty traumatic experience because that was my first encounter with death. That was my first time seeing my mom super frantic and stressed and hysterical. So I don't remember much about that other than My brother died, a couple days later we went to the coast, I think for my grandfather to clear my mom's head. Um, And then we had the funeral. And then I don't remember really much else after that until we moved into our own place. I lived specifically on Woosley. So we lived on Woosley off of Willis Avenue in North Portland, very close to the Columbia Villa, literally two blocks from Columbia Park. So that was the first house I remember us living in. I went to John Ball Elementary School, which is no longer there, but that was the first school that I attended. So music found me during that time that we lived in North Portland at John Ball Elementary School. First grade, I'll never forget Miss Meyer, I still remember her name, and we were getting ready for our winter concert that we were supposed to have, and I got picked to do the lead for our class song that we were doing that year. and. I remember the excitement I had because I got to be the person that led it, but I also remember how nervous I was because i never sung in front of anyone. My mom didn't even know I liked singing. And so I remember telling my mom and telling my family, and because John Ball didn't have an auditorium, we had to have our performance at Portsmouth, which is now known as Cesar Chavez, K through eight, but back then it was Portsmouth Middle School. And that's where our concert was. And I remember we had these, paper streamers on our wrists and these little hats that we had made. And I remember it was the first time I got to dress up. So I had on some slacks and a little uh, gray sleeveless vest with a nice white dress shirt underneath. And we did the song and I got to come out and sing the song. And I remember at the end of the song, the crowd cheering was just something I never forgot. And I knew at that moment, even then, one day I want to do this. I want to do this in front of people. I want to sing and perform and get claps like, like that. I want that to happen again. And that was my first experience with music. I think in that moment that I performed for the first time in front of people, it literally was a moment of discovery for me because I felt like that was the first time I found my voice. Again, shy kid, not really talking a lot, went through a traumatic experience relocating to a city that I don't know from a city where I was at. Mostly in Omaha where we lived, most of that side of the family were all white. Now I'm in a city, most of my family is all black and most of my friends are black. So the experience was a lot and overwhelming. Plus we had just had that trauma that had happened with my brother passing away. So it was the first time I felt like I just found me. I found It was like a moment of discovery of finding my voice and feeling like this is where I belong. I don't know everybody else's story or what their purpose is, right? But for me, I just found so much in that moment. I just, I want this. I don't know how, I don't know what to do to get it, but I want this all the time. There wasn't a choir program at my middle school. I remember that I went to Portsmouth first for my sixth grade year, there was no choir. And then we moved to Northeast Portland over by Woodlawn Park. That was completely different because we were no longer in North Portland, now we're in Northeast. And so I transferred from Portsmouth to Whitaker Middle School. And so I attended Whitaker and I don't remember there being a choir there. At that time we had started attending church. And so I did start doing gospel music and getting very familiar with choir music and church music and gospel, but I didn't have choral in my life or any type of music program in school until Jefferson came and did a assembly at Whitaker. Whitaker was a magnet school. Jeff was a magnet school. Jeff came to Whitaker basically to showcase what they offered because the option was either going to Jefferson or Grant. That was our two options from Whitaker. That was the first time I saw the gospel choir at Jefferson. I remember Eugene Blackman was the choir teacher then. Chris Turner was actually playing for them on keys several other Jefferson choir students that I'm now great friends with, but didn't have a clue who they were then, were all in the choir. And I just remember seeing them, the dance program, other elements of the arts that were all displayed in that assembly. And I just said, I'm going to that school to join that choir. So Jefferson was life. Like, I mean, I talked about kind of my origin of music, which was, you know, John Ball, but where music came to life for me and like literally was my safe haven, my escape, my everything, it was during my time at Jefferson High School. And I was in the arts program in general, like I was in theater, I was in choir, I was in dance, I was in all the different arts programs, but music was transformational for me. It was life-changing because it wasn't just gospel. I got gospel, I got hymns spirituals jazz classical some pop right there was just so many different genres of music that we were exposed to and then we got to go to competitions and like go and perform at different places and it was just a whole new world that i just wasn't exposed to plus it was community right i had all of these amazing people that i got to connect with and bond with and develop relationships with, all of whom I'm still very close with. And Saida being one. That was where I met Saida. That's where I met Loomis, now known as Courtney. That's where I met Chris Turner. That's where I met Anthony Jones. That's where I met the Jones family. And T's younger siblings and Nene and all like there was so much family. There was community. There was, there was just, it was life. It was just there was so much going on in my life personally. There was a lot of traumatic things that were happening in our lives um, on a personal level. But when I got to school, everything else was, was gone. Like that was, the, that was my safe haven was choir. And I hated school. I really did. I hated school. I hated studying. I hated anything. But just knowing that I get to go and be in that space, that's what got me up every day to go. I met a lot of incredible friends that I'm still friends with now during that era at Jeff. Eugene Blackman was still our gospel teacher that first year I came. My freshman year, that was also the first time I had ever did a solo, right? Since that time I had mentioned that I was in first grade, I'm here with all these incredible singers in this choir and Eugene picks me to lead the song and I'm like, bruh, are you serious? <laughs> With all these singers you got in here and you picked me, of all people, why is he picking me? And I was so nervous, but that performance was life-changing for me because it was the first time I ever felt the power of the Spirit move through me while I sung. I'd never experienced that before, that moment, on that stage at that performance. The next year, Eugene was no longer there, so we were all upset because we loved Eugene, right? And the skinny kid, he looked like a kid, came walking in <laughs> with glasses that, you know, was a little lopsided and crooked and a cross colors trench coat and that we still made fun of to this day about. And he came walking in and we was like, who, who did he think he finna to come in here and teach? He ain't finna to teach us. And we gave him the blues, but to this day, and that was Derek McDuffie, um, and he was our, our gospel teacher. And he learned very quickly how to adapt and deal with us. That's why to this day he still is quick with his zingers because we trained him well during that time. We evolved and we, we became very, very close. That's how I got to become a part of his group was you know he really saw something in me. And at that time he had a group called Chosen Generation that he had started. And it really was a space that kind of was for everybody that didn't fit into the other spaces, right? And he really just poured into us, taught us, trained us a lot more about gospel, right? And really articulated things that we really normally didn't tap into in school choir. Uh, But that's how I got connected to Derek, who also, you know, Saida was a part of that. In fact, Saida can testify because people don't believe me when I tell them that what you hear me sound and do today, I didn't sound like that in high school. And people don't believe me when I say that. Saida can vouch, because Saida was the one that was the hardest on me out of everybody. <laughs> and she'd be like, Alonzo, you're flat. What are you doing? That is not your note. This is what it needs to be. And I mean, she was hard on me, but I loved it, right? It was like, okay, well, what do I do? Tell me what to do so I can sound better. And, and she would. She would tell me what to do or arch her eyebrows. And like, she would tell me all these little things to do. And I loved her and grew really, really close to her and so many others. But there was just a bond and a musicianship and a closeness that i just had with so many of those folks during that era of high school. During that time, which was around like 93ish, 94, school was great, choir was great, music was great, but at home, it was a very difficult time. My mom was a single parent mom, raising four kids by herself. I had an older sister, two younger siblings. I basically had to take care of my younger siblings because my mom had to work all the time. Her work hours were insane. On top of that, my mom also was battling a very difficult sickness at that time where she, you know, had a a very serious... Hemorrhaging situation where she was constantly, always weak and bleeding all the time, and so it was just a very traumatic time. That when I came home, it was the reality of like, yeah, I'm not in La La Land anymore. Now I'm kind of in reality, and I have to be responsible and and be an adult, even though I'm a kid, right? And I have to raise my siblings. I have to cook. I have to clean. I have to help with homework. I have to make sure that they're good. So I didn't get to do extracurricular activities. Thank God that Jefferson had all of those programs happen during the school day, because if it was after school, I would not have been able to participate because I had to leave right after school, go get my siblings, go home, make sure they did their homework, fed them, bathed them, got them ready for you know school the next day, put them in the bed, right? That was like my life up until like my junior year. On top of that, there was a lot of trauma that had happened. So before we relocated to Northeast Portland, You know, I had to be in foster care for almost a year and be removed from our family for some crazy things. And so that was just a rough time. Then I got to come back home, but we never dealt with the trauma of that, right? So it was kind of like, okay, well, I got to go back to work. You be home, do all this stuff. And I'm like, can we talk about like, what the hell just happened? Like, it was a lot that I just experienced. I was in foster care for a year that was very traumatic. I had to fight almost every day. Like I had to really deal with a lot of craziness on top of that. Like I hated life and was angry at the world. And so I was a horrible student and, you know, acting crazy at school. So like this was on the mend. Again, music kind of was my escape. That was my safe haven. That was my safe place. Music did save my life. And that's why I say that all the time in speeches and uh, when I'm talking to people about music and advocating for music, right? as it pertains to young people, it literally was the thing that saved me. If I wouldn't have encountered music in the way that I did and got that sense of community the way that I did that came out of music, I probably would be a very different Alonzo today if I would even still be here. There definitely have been moments in my life where I have felt like music is just not it or maybe I need to pick another path or another journey That was much later in adult life though, way after high school. And I definitely did get to a point where I developed this love-hate relationship with church because that was where the majority of music happened for me after high school. And so there was this era, maybe around like the 2004-ish era where I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I want to sing. I definitely don't think I want to do anything related to church. And I think I'm just kind of done with all of this. And so I think that was the first time I ever tried to quit music and tried to quit singing and doing anything related to music, which also was, you know, in a sense was related to church and my faith. So it was kind of like I was on that journey and trajectory was like, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want the people. I don't want the things that come with it. I feel like people are just taking advantage of me and what I can do for them and they have no regard or little regard for me as an individual or as a person. And so I don't like that feeling and I don't wanna do this anymore. I think the thing that was allowing me to make money during all that time, I'm embarrassed to say this. Well, I take that back. I'm not embarrassed now. I used to be embarrassed to say this. I have never kept a, a job long. I started working at 16 and from 16 to up until, as long as I can remember, I've always had a job, always. I was always working somewhere, but I also had a lot of maturing and growing up to do. So it was kind of like, I wouldn't show up to work, call off. I was just a a lazy individual. And it was like, I just, I felt like the world owed me because of all of the, because all the shit I had went through, right? I felt like the world owes me. And so like, I don't, feel like I need to do anything for anybody, like people need to be doing for me, right? And that's kind of the mindset I had, which is crazy now that I think back on that, but I literally thought that way. And so I would never keep a job probably more than six months. If I felt like I was gonna get fired, I'd quit before they could fire me, right? And then I just, I don't know why I had this crazy favor where like within a week I'd I'd have another job. And like, (laughs) and so that was kind of my, Thing. So, music was like always my go to thing, but like I had to make money. And also, I had this love hate relationship with work anyway because I didn't get to like keep my money. Like, my money went towards taking care of my family. So, it wasn't my money. It was like I had to help pay bills and, you know, other things that, you know, I was responsible for before I should have been. And so, it was like, yeah, I don't, this is for the birds. Like, why am I working to make money that's going to somebody else? Even though, Today, I'm working to make money that's cool to somebody else. <laughs> so it's still the same, but back then, you know, the burden or the responsibility shouldn't have been on me, right? So I had this love-hate relationship with jobs. So anyway, fast forward, after high school, in church, I had met this amazing family called the Thomases, and I became very close with their family. and. One of my best friends at the time, Robert Thomas, his mom, who was like a second mom to me, was running a program and she was like, I'm gonna hire you. And so she did and that was probably the first time I had did anything in the nonprofit world and I got to work with kids. And so I think that shifted how I thought about work because now I get to connect with these kids that are just like me, like I was, right? Like, And these kids were, my standards or labels, according to the schools and the districts they were in, was like kind of like subpar. They needed additional support and help with literacy and reading. And a lot of that was tied to trauma and other things going on in their lives. And so that's why she was just so adamant that she felt like I'd be perfect for this job. And when I started doing it, I did love it because I got to connect with these kids who had life challenges like I did. They needed someone to see them like I needed someone to see me. Right. And so. That was kind of like my, I think there's something to this. I want to stay in this realm or this field. So that was really pretty much what I did. I just never left the nonprofit world after that. And I was around the 2005 era. That's when I first started in that nonprofit world. And I stuck with it and stayed there up till now, where I'm at now. Now I am the executive director at Bravo Youth Orchestras. The purpose of that organization and program is to create social change through music. It was a lot to feel like I qualified for that role because yeah, I'm good. I like where I was working. I worked at a culturally specific organization that served families of color and I worked my way up the ladder there and I was good and I was content. Someone sent me the job description for this new role, like four different people sent me the same job description asking asked me, did I know anyone? And I kept saying, no, I don't I don't know anybody. Like, the only people I could think of that would do it either are doing something else or wouldn't want to do this job. So I was like, yeah, I'm good. I don't think I know anyone. And so by the fourth time, I finally said, let me look and read the actual job description. And so when I read it, I was like, holy crap, this is me. Community engagement, youth, music, social justice, all the things that I'm very passionate about and involved in, but in multiple capacities, but this job embodied all of it in one. And I'm like, "I I think this is my thing. I think this is what I should be doing. And I inquired and applied and lo and behold, surprisingly, I got it. And been there a year and seven months now. The track or the trajectory that I was on in music with the background from choir at Jeff, all kind of encompassed, it led me to Noah's Gospel Christmas, the Oregon Symphony. I had heard about it and someone had told me about the opportunity to sing and perform in Gospel Christmas and I had no idea what it was and so I got an audition to go and audition for it not having any clue what I was going to audition for. So I showed up to do the audition, again still having no clue about what I was auditioning for. They asked me to sing the song that was so popular at the time that I was singing everywhere which was I Need You Now and I sung it and they were floored and they were like, yes you're in we want you i was like okay cool and i left and then i never i never came back (laughs) because i didn't know what it was and it was like okay i don't know if i have time for this like yeah like thanks i think but i'm good like i didn't so i didn't have time i remember i got comp tickets that year to go and so i went to the concert and i sat there in the audience kicking myself like what the heck was I thinking? Like, why did I not follow through? This is freaking amazing. This is a huge gospel choir. They're singing with the symphony. Like, it's in this huge auditorium and all these people are here. Like, why did I blow this? Like, what the heck? So the whole concert, I'm there with tears in my eyes, like floored at the experience, but also like, what the heck was I thinking? The next year, I couldn't wait till auditions again. And I came back and I just, apologized profusely like I'm so sorry I didn't know and also I had a lot going on and like I really want to do this though and so they let me re-audition and I got in that year and my first year doing Gospel Christmas I secured two solos which wasn't normal right for soloists to get two solos especially your first year but I did and I remember both songs were incredibly high I think one of the songs was a, the lead was by Karen Clark and i got that lead and i'm like what what was i th- thinking about auditioning for this this lead but i did it it was amazing and i remember that very feeling that i had first grade year at portsmouth with miss Myers' class that feeling when the crowd clapped that feeling it was like literally a full circle moment like holy crap like this is what happened to me first grade, and now it's happening to me here, and people are standing up and clapping and cheering for me. This is insane. And so it was like, yeah, I, I want to keep doing this. And so I did. I committed to doing Gospel Christmas every year, and every year I continued and I, I kept getting solos. And then there was one year in particular, I don't remember what song it was, but it was the first time I got a standing ovation. And I had to come on the stage three different times because they wouldn't stop clapping and cheering. And I remember going, this is, this is my purpose, right? This is my destiny. I remember that was the first year that I actually, uh, after the concert was over, left from the loft to go out into the, the lobby and greet people and meet people. And the stories that were told to me about what people experienced when I sung It was this kind of conflicting ideology that I was taught in church, right? That your gift is only for the church. It ain't for the world, right? That was what I was raised to believe in some of the churches that I grew up in. But I have all these people who are not church who are telling me how they felt healing or felt the spirit of God touch them or couldn't describe what it was that they felt, but they felt something, right? So it was kind of like this okay, this is, this is my destiny. Like This is what I'm supposed to do. And I don't know if it's necessarily tied to just church, but I wanna keep doing this. And so that year, Peter Damon with the Waterfront contacted the symphony and asked for my contact info. And they wanted me to do the national anthem at the blues festival right before they lit off the fireworks. And that was my first time at anything other than gospel Christmas or church, right? So it was like, okay, this is an incredible opportunity here. I'm excited about this, but I'm gonna come out there and I'm gonna try. So I came out there and I did and I stood on that stage and I think that was the first time I ever saw people as far as the eye could see. They quoted that there was maybe 35,000 people there that day, I don't know, but I just remember as far down at Tom McCall Waterfront Park that I could see, I just saw bodies of people and they had me do the national anthem and I sung it. And I don't know how they cued it the way they did, but right when I finished my last note, the fireworks started blaring and blasting off and people were cheering and going crazy. And that was the door that opened up for me to start doing things outside of gospel Christmas and outside of church. That was how that door opened for me to start getting booked to do more things all over the city. Staying booked right now looks like traveling all over the country. It looks like getting multiple corporate gigs, uh, multiple local gigs. Um, I have my own band now that I've started in 2017 called Zofa Music. And we've been doing our thing since 2017 and are booked and traveling and doing all the great things that I'm mentioning now. So staying booked means literally that, like literally I'm traveling, I'm always, trying to to balance family life, work life, and music because all of them equally compete for the limelight, trying to balance all of that. So staying booked right now means it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because a lot of people want to be booked. I am booked. It's a curse because I'm trying to find the balance in it. I have five children, one that will turn 21 this year, my oldest. I have a 12-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And I've been married now for 13 years. A lot of the times that I'm traveling, my wife gets to go because I hire her as one of my singers. So so that's cool that I get to travel and my wife gets to travel with me. A lot of people don't get to say that. And also, she's like my favorite soprano. So <laughs> having her booked uh, with me is always great. And it's cool because she gets to see this evolvement of me right of she saw me when I was just a kid my wife tells the story and it's one of the things that drew me to her was she was one of the only young ladies that was not impressed with my singing like she didn't like my singing at all she she hated it and everybody else was like oh and she was like oh god here comes this dude that think he can sing and right so the fact that she wasn't like oohing and on over me was like what made her appealing to me was like She ain't into me just for my music, for my singing and what I could do. So that's what made me pursue her. But it's cool that she gets to know me from that side till now, where she gets to travel with me and see all of the incredible opportunities that also puts money in her pocket. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I didn't recognize until maybe within the last three to five years, the impact I've made on other musicians and singers. And I think it's largely because I've always had this internal thing that just made me always just be grateful for the opportunities that I'm afforded. So it's never been a, I'm Alonzo Chadwick, I'm this great phenomenal being in force. It's always been, I'm extremely blessed and lucky that I get to do this, that a lot of people wanna do it and I get to do it, right? because I've always had that view, I've never viewed myself as this like person that everyone looks up to or everyone wants to be like or everyone wants to sit under or one that has helped shape the lives of others until maybe about three to five years ago when I really started thinking about the people who I've crossed paths with who now are phenomenal, right? And in their own right, doing their own thing. Some no longer reside in this city and have moved on to do music in a huge capacity, which sometimes that's a, a blessing and a curse, right? It's like they've moved on, but dang, I'm still here grinding, trying to make it happen. But they like caught the bug and and took off and transpired and and did their thing. And I'm still sitting here like, well, what about me? And it's also been like I don't think they even recognize like how much I sacrificed and the time that I spent pushing them and encouraging them and helping to mold them and shape them. In some instances have had to shield them and protect them from this industry that we know music, right? Because I've experienced a lot. I've seen the good and the bad of music and the music industry. I've been burned with contracts and not having things in writing and doing things expecting to get paid and not getting paid. And so like, there's a lot that I've experienced that it was like, let me make sure you don't get taken advantage of in this way. So I always looked out for my people. I always have. It's just always been my second nature that anyone that has these incredible opportunities if I have the power and the ability to help them or recognize what they're doing and how they can be taken advantage of, or even just giving them advice of just guard yourself, guard your your mindset. So watching them take off and soar and going, dang, did you forget about, you you forgot about me. That hurts, but at the same time, it's like I'm gonna be excited for them that they're on their journey, on their path. And that is what I am a firm believer in, in life is that everybody has to go their journey. Everybody has to walk their journey, no matter what that looks like. That means the good, the bad, the ugly, the stuff that we want to prevent them from going through that we can't, right? All those things all help shape them and make them who they are. Even me now being 42, looking back over my life, I'm like, I'm grateful for every experience because all of it shaped me. But it was some, some shitty moments, right? It was some hard moments. It was some lonely moments. It was some some moments where I felt like, man, screw all of this, it's not worth it, right? All of those things all work together, right? And and now I can look back and say, look at the beautiful portrait that this is, but while the portrait was being painted, I didn't see the good of it. I'm like, this looks a hot mess, right? What the hell is this? <laughs> what kind of stroke is it? Like, you know, you're looking at it, but you're like, I don't see it. Now looking back going, oh, I see now how, that piece fit into that piece. And that had to happen so that this could connect. And so now when I look back, I'm grateful, right, of all of the experience, all of the hurt, all of the heartache, all of the betrayals, all of of that really helped define me and get me to this place of gratitude, right? Of recognizing that, again, many want to do this. I get to do this. And I'm appreciative, right, of the journey. And I'm appreciative of being on this side to say, man, that was beautiful, but you couldn't have told me it was beautiful in the moments. I would have cussed you out. (laughs) (laughs) Activism and social justice work really came into my life around the 2013 era. It was after Trayvon Martin. Yeah, I was working for SEI, which is Self Enhancement Incorporated, which is one of the largest culturally specific nonprofits in the state of Oregon. And they serve all youth, but with the emphasis on youth of color and black youth. I got to run or be a part of running the arts and performance program there. But also, different from just doing music and studio production and all the other stuff we got to do, I got to teach a class called BRB, which was for our middle school boys, which stood for Brothers Reflecting Brotherhood. I remember our class that I was doing, it was shortly after the the verdict of Trayvon Martin. I will never forget the anger, the disappointment, the rage, and the frustration that those kids had. And I'll never forget that I had no answer for them. I couldn't tell them comply and you'll live because Trayvon Martin, it didn't prove that. From then till now, we obviously have seen many other things that have have transpired. But back then, I was so broken for them was because I was their age the first time I had my negative encounter with the police. In North Portland, where guns were drawn on me by the police. I was 12 years old. That was my first encounter with the police. Up until that point, I always had wanted to be a cop, until that happened. So I had all of these emotions, And I didn't like that I didn't have an answer. I didn't like that I couldn't tell them, well, if you do this and pull up your pants and stop acting this way, then you won't be mistreated. Because the reality is, is it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter your profession, it doesn't matter your background. I mean, Troy Martin was in aviation, right, as a kid. Like, how many black kids do you know that get those kind of opportunities, but even still, he still lost his life, right? So it's like looking at those those things. So I remember being frustrated and on my own social justice journey, right? And because of my faith lens of being a a believer and being a follower of Jesus, I was conflicted because it was like, I don't wanna just pray about it. And that's what everybody's saying. We just gotta keep praying. Well, how long we gonna keep praying? We've been praying since slavery. When are we going to do something about this, right? Like, I I hear y'all. And then I started really kind of on my journey of social justice. And I recognized, like, SNCC and Martin Luther King and Congressman John Lewis and all these cats was, they were doing organizing and stuff, but they were doing it in the churches. And I was going, so where did we get off course, right? Like, where did we lose that? And then I started digging deeper, like, as far back as you can remember, even in slavery, like the church was a pivotal part in the Underground Railroad, right? Like you went to the church houses that get, got you connected to where to go and where to be for you to, like the church has always been pivotal in social justice and in activism and in making change. But that wasn't the church that I knew. It's the church I've read about. It's a church that I've seen, but I didn't know that church in my experience of what I've grown up here in Portland. And so I I grew very displeased with the way that we did church. And I got tired of doing, we just gonna pray about it. And I was invited to, by a good friend, Ron Silver, their church does a Martin Luther King celebration every year. And they asked me to be a part of that celebration and I got to sing, but I got to be this soloist before the speaker. And that year, the speaker was Congressman John Lewis. I was embarrassed that I didn't know who he was Until he spoke that day. But his speech was sometimes you find yourself getting into good, necessary trouble. Good trouble, necessary trouble. And that just rung and rung and rung. And I went, that's it. I'm supposed to get involved in some good, necessary trouble. But how? What do I do? I don't even know where to start, but I'm going to get involved in something. And so, and that's what I did. That's kind of really what started my social justice journey was, I found myself going to city hall or going to meetings where they were speaking to city commissioners about rights and civil rights and about police brutality and other different things. Found myself going to protests and rallies and different things that were happening, just trying to find my niche, which one fits me, right? So I did a little bit of everything trying to find where I fit and what fit me. The thing that blew me away was every single place that I went almost, Dr. T. Allen Bethel was there. He's the only pastor that I see at all of these different things. And I wanna do this through the lens of my belief and my faith. I don't wanna do it outside of it, but our churches aren't really doing much. So I don't know that I can do it the way that I wanna do it until I saw him doing it. So that's warranted me having a conversation with him, coming to meet with him, eventually joining his church and sitting under him and learning from him. I would be in his office when he had conversations with the governor and the the mayor and other folks. I was there when he was calling the Department of Justice to come in here and do an audit with the city about the police brutality. I was there when he was the one navigating and negotiating with bringing in civil rights speakers and, and all that, like he was Pivotal, he was on multiple boards for transportation, for housing, like he was involved in so much. And I'm going, this is it, right? So I'm like, well, I'm not a part of all those things, but I'm a part of music. So how do I use my platform like he's using his platform to make the same kind of impact that he's making? And so that's really what led me down my social justice journey. And what surprised a lot of people was I'd show up to places and they think I was there to sing and I'd be there as an activist Um, or I'd show up to places to sing and people would think that I'm there as an activist so it was always weird to see the dynamic of people not knowing me in the other like they either knew me as Alonzo the activist or they knew me as Alonzo the singer they didn't know me as both so it was always shocking when people got to see me in different light and then I started thinking about like our singers like Nina Simone and Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and all those others who use their platforms to bring about awareness to social justice and, and social change that needed to happen. So, the advice that I would give to young artists, musicians, singers is don't be afraid of the journey. If I could go back and look at things different, I would say embrace change, don't resist it. And I learned that from my grandfather. You know, God, I didn't want to get emotional, but. If there's one thing that I learned from him throughout his life is that he was always a hard worker and life threw him some, some hardships, many that I didn't learn about until after he passed away, right? But I would have never known had I not learned about it after he passed. But in the midst of all of those transitions, right? And that's kind of what we talked about as the theme in this whole conversation is, there's been many things that have happened and transpired in my life everything that came, all of it was change, right? It's something different, something different than what I thought I knew or something different than I thought I discovered. And the mistake that I made is when change would come, I resisted it every time. I've now learned not to resist change, embrace it. Because you can't change, change. It's gonna happen, it's inevitable. I'm 42 now, right? I wish I could say that these gray hairs that that are in my head, right, that they weren't here. But the reality is, is I couldn't change it if I wanted to. I can't change the fact that my body is changing and that I'm getting older, right, that I'm getting more experienced. I can't stop my kids from going from adolescence into puberty, right, and becoming young women. I wish I could halt time and stop it to say, no, it's moving too fast, but I can't. It is going to happen. I equate it to a river, You get out there in a river, no matter how much you want to, you cannot stop the current. You can fight against it all you want to. You can swim against it all you want to. All it's going to do is drain your energy, drain your strength, and eventually you're going to have to just release and go with the flow, right? And go with the current. And that's what I've learned in this journey. I don't want to be the one that's trying to resist the current. I want to be the one that's just going to go with the flow and trust that God and his infinite wisdom and plan is going to allow me to land right where I'm supposed to land. Right. I'm going to be right where I'm supposed to be, which always happened every time. I resisted it. I fought it. But ultimately, I always ended up right where I was supposed to be. None of it caught God by surprise, even my resistance. Right. So if I could say anything to anybody, I would say, don't fight the process. Don't fight the journey. Admire it. Embrace it. Enjoy it, even the painful parts, right? It's hard, but we want to be overnight successes. And when you have that kind of mentality, as quick as it comes, it can leave just as fast. But when you really have had to sit in it and you've had to endure it, there's an appreciation that comes with that that doesn't come overnight, right? All this that I've gone through and now for me automatically say I'm walking away from this, I'd be crazy, right? I fought too hard. I went through too much to to get here. Why would I just throw it all away now? And I think that's the part for me is I don't want to resist and I don't want to walk away from what I worked so hard to get to. It took me 42 years to get to this point where I'm comfortable in my skin and being unapologetically me when I stand on the stage, because there's, there's even that fear, right? I'm a black man that lives in one of the whitest cities in, in the country, and people love me as an artist and a vocalist. But when I go show up at a festival and I'm walking up and people don't know who I am, I don't get greeted with the, the love and embrace and kindness that I get after I walk off that stage finish singing. When I'm walking up to sing, it's like, what is he doing here? He doesn't belong here. I'm out in the Dalles. I'm out in Sherwood. I'm out in parts of Oregon where we ain't, right? (laughs) And people are really looking at me like I don't belong. And then I get on that stage and I sing and I perform. And then after that, I'm swarmed with people saying, you're incredible. I I loved you so much. I'm going, okay, well, where was that energy when I was walking up? I'm that same individual, right? I've learned that now happy in my skin and happy being unapologetically me. If I'm singing a song called Higher Ground and the lyrics to that song is talking about people keep on warring and and all that and I'm saying that from a place of no, I'm unapologetically going to say that where we're at in our climate and our country and in our culture and in society, yeah, I'm singing this with a different meaning, unapologetically me. And I'm good being who I am. And I'm not afraid to resist or to be the one that that uses my platform to bring awareness. And that's what I wish I'd embraced early on in my career, is that passion to not be afraid to speak truth to power, even when it means it might cost me opportunities.
0: This is a special episode that was funded specifically by the Oregon Community Foundation through their Creative Heights program. I'm so incredibly grateful to them for recognizing our efforts and really witnessing what we're trying to do with this work. As a result of their generous funding, we were able to pay this artist substantially more than a living wage to work on this interview with us. And we're so honored to be recognizing the great work that they've been doing over years and years and years that brought them to this point in their career. So thank you again to them and thank you to OCF for creating more opportunities for artists and culture bearers to share work and share ideas. It just means the world to us. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Future Prairie and all of the fun projects we're working on over the next several months, just head over to futureprairie.com. And we also welcome your thoughts and ideas and feedback Please feel free to reach out anytime online, on social media, at Future Prairie.